It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman with Dr. Stuart Fishbein. He is Dr. Stu. How are you? Uh, Brian, thanks for asking. I am actually quite well today. So usually it's the doctor asks the other guy, how is he? That's right. That's usually my first question. And you don't have to wear the lab coat. No, I actually uh, gave up the lab coat about 25 (laughs) years ago. Now, is that an emotional thing for a doctor to give up the lab coat? Because, you know, to me, if I became a doctor tomorrow, I would sleep in my lab coat. I would never take it off. Well, I think the lab coat has always sort of represented uh, the hierarchy of medicine. So a doctor wearing the full-length lab coat was the professor, the the students wore the half-length lab coat. And that sort of still goes on in academia. And if you go to hospitals where there's residents, they're all wearing lab coats. That's sort of a sign of respect. It's also a sign to keep their clothes clean from stuff they may encounter. But I think in the private practice setting, uh, lab coats are way too formal. Uh, I don't think that physicians should be wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt. I always wear a shirt and tie when I'm at work. But I think the lab coat is sort of frightening. Uh, People have what's called, you've heard the term, white coat syndrome. Yeah, right. And that means that when they come in to a doctor's office, they're already nervous. You take their blood pressure when they first come in, it's really high. By the end of the visit, you take it again and it's back down to normal. I've had doctors actually, I'd go in, they would take my blood pressure and they would say, sky high. I take blood pressure medication. They would say, sky high, this can't be normal. And I would say, it's not normal. And they would say, well, you have to sit here and be calm for 10 minutes and we'll come back and take your blood pressure because if it's like this high, we got to send you to the hospital or something. Yeah, a good piece of advice to people when they go in to get their blood pressure checked, whether it's at the local pharmacy or whether it's their doctor appointment, whatever else is, is, you know, take about five to 10 deep breaths, calm down, make sure you just didn't run in, make sure you just didn't have a cup of coffee, make sure you just didn't have a, a road rage incident or something like that. Come in and sit down. If your blood pressure, you feel still is a little high, don't let them take it right away. When you're ready to take your blood pressure, a lot of times it helps to sort of recline a little bit and also to maybe think about something that can lower your blood pressure. And a lot of people think about having a pet, uh, like a kitten purring on their chest or a, a fish tank where there's like beautiful fish swimming around. They've told me that if I pet my dog, my blood pressure actually drops while I'm petting the dog. That is true. That is true. That is a, it, it, There is well-known studies in therapy, I mean, therapeutic uh, value to having pets. I think people... Uh, also, older people who live alone who have pets tend to live longer than pe- than people who don't. So I'm headed in the right direction. I mean, you'd look at me and say you're not headed in the right well, direction. Well, do you have are you do you have eight cats now or nine? <laughs> seventeen. Oh. I have seventeen yeah. cats now. Right, and it's become a problem. You know, the landlord has an issue with it. He says, "Hey, I think you're over the cat limit." Yeah. I said, "Well, what is it? Is it fifteen? Sixteen? Show me the paperwork." No, I think, and I think that uh, with that many cats, you can be sure you'll always be living alone. <laughs> <laughs> now, very quickly, you talk about blood pressure, and it's a, a big thing for me. Lisinopril, you're familiar with the medication. That's what I'm on. Yes, I am familiar with it, but again, blood pressure is not one of my specialties. But we do don't we use trust? That, we don't use that medicine in pregnancy, but I know the medication. Yes. Right, and of course, Dr. Stu is an OBGYN, and we're going to talk about home births and all of that. But very quickly, do you trust the uh, electronic blood pressure taker at the CVS? You mentioned that a moment ago. You know, you go in there and just put your arm in there, and it and it takes your blood pressure. And it's an automated thing. I, I always feel like, oh, this machine can't be right. No, it's, it, you know, it, it, you can get variations if you take it two times in a row. You can get slightly different numbers. But you're only looking for ballpark numbers anyway. Your exact blood pressure isn't really that important. It sort of trends mm-hmm. to do that. So, yeah, I, I trust the automated blood pressure cuffs uh, 
pretty much. And I think you can go in periodically and check your blood pressure at a pharmacy, and that's it's fine. You should record those things. And then you, you check in with your uh, physician as needed. And one of my big things was, you know, with the weight going up and down, when the weight's down, the blood pressure goes down. It's just been kind of magical for me. And then I put on 30 pounds and my, and my blood pressure goes back up. I mean, I'm not, we're not doing a house call here, but you understand. I'm trying to, you know, understand what's going on here. Well, that's a no-brainer. And, and also, I mean, most Americans are, are sort of, we talked about this a little bit last time, we're sort of inundated with Western medicine. And, you know, when something's wrong, we want to take a pill for it. We want to have a surgery for it. Uh There are other alternatives and that are becoming more popular. Uh, Naturopathic medicine, homeopathic medicine, Chinese medicine. And these things, there there are some very good remedies for hypertension that probably have less side effects than medications like uh, atenolol, lisinopril, Uh other antihypertensive medications, which sometimes can do certain things to your body, good for blood pressure, Maybe bad for libido, bad for performance. Right. Those sorts of things can happen as side effects of medication. You mentioned, Dr. Stu, a moment ago, you were talking about how the... Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. Randy just, when I said performance, he just sort of raised oh, his oh, eyebrow, oh, 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 okay. Yeah, Randy, when, yeah, what you is... Got, you guys talking about male performance here? Yeah, well, actually, we were. Were you listening in? Yeah, that, that kind of sparked my interest. Do you have a question? By the way, it's askdrstu at gmail.com if you have a question for Dr. Stu. We stumbled yeah. upon the subject of male performance, and Randy woke sort up. of... Yeah. 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 The only he question I'll up. ask is, would you recommend not to dwell on it if it happens? Yeah, I would recommend Okay, because that. That, that, uh, that sparks a few problems for me. I, I'll pursue that. Don't dwell on it during or after. Both. Or both. Well, I think if you're... If it's during, it's probably not a performance problem, is it? Well, but I think a lot of guys, they might get it in their mind, and they're thinking about previous performance issues if they had a, if they had a bad night. You mean, you mean they don't think about baseball? <laughs> oh, I should try that. Yeah, that <laughs> right. seems to work. Right, it does, right? Right, right, right. And you're going to the Dodger game tonight, aren't you? I am going to the Dodger game. I'm a guest of a friend of mine, and I'm very excited about it. It's my first baseball game in a year and a half, and uh, we're playing the Yankees. Oh. So I actually don't really care about either team, but I'll probably be cheering loudly for the Dodgers well, I saw I saw a poll the other day. It's America's most, America's most loved baseball team. Of course, the Yankees, number one on the list there. I grew up going to the Yankee game. But the Dodgers are real hot right now. I know. It's a great year to be a Dodger fan. It is a great year to be a Dodger fan. It's never been a great year to be a Twins fan since 1991, but... <laughs> There you are. I am a Twins fan. I'm a loyal Minnesota fan in, in, in football and baseball. But, of course, when it comes to hockey, my team moved to Dallas, the North Stars. So I, <laughs> I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I became a Kings fan. Right. And we won't dwell on it anymore because we're off season right now. And it's very painful. But in future podcasts, it's been we'll painful. Be spending a lot of time. Well, it was painful for 45 years. Now, let me ask you quickly, because Dr. Stu, of course, he does home births. And we talked on the first podcast a lot about home birthing. And we'll talk more about that as we continue here. Uh, I would think one of the downsides of being a doctor, if you're at that Kings game, you're at that Dodger game tonight, and that phone goes off or that beeper goes off, and a woman uh, is giving birth or she begins to go into labor, right? You have to forget it, forget the game, forget the Dodger dogs. You're out of that stadium, right? Yeah, you know, it is an interesting thing, Brian, that I think over the years you evolved to be able to deal with this better. But when I first started in practice, and I was on call every other night for a group of a large group of physicians, you know, it was impossible to go to the Hollywood Bowl. It was impossible to go to Dodger Stadium because you were on call for a lot of people. But my life child has changed a little bit. And most of the time, I have such good communication with my patients. By the way, we call patients in the home birthing movement, we call them clients because we don't think they're sick. So we want to sort of differentiate from the idea that they're patients. But anyway, whether I use the word patient or client interchangeably, please forgive me. 
that's just the uh, no. I appreciate that out. distinction. Yeah, that's it slips interesting. out sometimes. Right, but but now I'm having such good communication with them, and they have my own phone number, and I talk to them that I don't fear going to a Dodger game, even though I have some people that are overdue right now. Because first of all, they call me early in labor. It's extremely unreason- un- unlikely that anything is going to happen within 45 minutes of them calling me, and so we have plenty of time. I also have, but they're nervous. Maybe. Well, they don't know that I'm at the Dodger game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And by the way, is that is is that? Yeah, you don't you don't tell you don't you don't <laughs> you don't want to tell people things that make them nervous. I mean, if I'm going on vacation, ethically, it would be absolutely wrong for me not to tell them I'm going away. And one of the deals that I make in my practice, since I'm solo and I do what I do with, I'm the only their only practitioner, is that I if I'm going away for a family vacation or something like Christmas break. I don't take anybody that's due from like December 15th till January 15th. I won't, I, if somebody comes in with a due date of December 31st, I will have to refer them to someone else. You say that I falls into the window of my vacation, really, I mean truly, and, and so I'm not going to yeah, take or, that on. In order to take a week's vacation, I really have to take three to four weeks off of delivering babies because of the variation when people go into labor. Now I have to ask you, Dr. Stu, because we're talking about people calling. So before we go on with the home birth thing, and I want to talk to you about uh, something you said about Far East Medicine a moment ago, and the distinction between patients and clients, that's very interesting to me. Please tell our listeners your listeners, the story that you have graced me with of the 2 a.m. call, the woman who called you, uh, that, that you were covering for a doctor and you got a call at 2 a.m.? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, well, a, this is one of my favorite Dr. Stu stories. Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, we could, any, any physician who's been on call long enough could come up with a, a whole book of, of anecdotal stories. Uh, one of my favorites was that I got a call at 2 in the morning from a woman who was not my client. She, I was covering for her, uh, her physician. And she called to tell me that she found a breast in her, excuse me, a, lump, a breast in her lump, right. a lump in her breast. Right. And so I asked her some questions about it and I reassured her that, you know, she should call the office in the morning and come in. Because this is at 2 a.m.? 2 a.m. in the morning. 2 a.m. woke me up solid. And I, and so at the last thing I sort of said, so by the way, you know, a lump in the breast, it's, you know, it's not really an emergency. You know, why did you call me now? And she tells me, well, the brochure says if you find a lump to call your doctor immediately. And she, so she took it literally, and she called me immediately. And, I mean, it's sort of and fair. it's understandable. <laughs> it's, you know, that's a very freaky thing. I had one woman call once because her husband had hemorrhoids. At 1 in the morning, he, she wakes me up for hemorrhoids, and I say, well, why, why don't you call his internist? And she says, oh, I didn't want to bother him. <laughs> so, you know, internists are doctors, and, and we're only gynecologists. And then so we can be bothered, and that's just, you know, it's one of those things that goes along with the territory. You get used to it. Uh, you know, just you have great, great stories. People are nervous when people are. They, a lot of people don't think when they're ill or when they're fearful, and there's so much to be fearful out there because everything you read, you get a new mole on your skin, and suddenly it's it's got to be a melanoma until proven otherwise. When you know what, old people, as we get older, we get tons of moles. I want to warn Randy and even you, Brian. Yeah, that, please. You know what? You're going to get. A lot of moles. I mean, they're going to appear everywhere, right? Yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> they <laughs> are, right? Stop going there's to the nothing, beach no, today. Place, no place is spared from a mole. <laughs> but right? you know, there's that fine line between people who call the doctor at 2 a.m. for anything and then people who never go to the doctor. I was talking to a friend of, my, uh, a friend of mine at work this morning, and he, we were talking about a colleague. I had a colleague who 
passed away at 53 years old. I mean, just a tragic story. We were kind of conversing about that. And he said, but you don't do that, right? You don't go to the doctor for everything. I said, I used to, but I don't do it anymore. And he said, what's the mindset behind that? And I said, you know, people who don't want to go to the doctor will say, you know what? Uh, I just did a, a radio show. I'm tired. I just worked till five o'clock. Why do I want to go to the doctor now at 530? I'm tired. You can think of a million reasons to not do it. And on the spectrum, that is as significant a problem as being a hypochondriac, I assume. Yeah, it, it, a lot of people, well, first of all, men tend to use the doctor far less than women. I mean, men are supposed to be tough and, they, and they're embarrassed by anything that's a health problem, especially if it's any area sort of above their knee and below their waist. Right, right. <laughs> they don't really want to talk about that sort of thing. But also, I mean, it is amazing sometimes that you'll see people come in with something that's visible. I'm not talking about something that's invisible, like inside your body, but a skin lesion or a open sore or something. And you ask them, it looks awful and it even may smell funny. And you say, how long has that been there? And they say, I think I noticed it about a year, year and a half ago. (laughs) It's like, you know, they they sat around with a stinky open sore for a year and a half. Right. Finally came in. And unfortunately, sometimes it's something that's not good because nothing that's good lasts for a year and a half. It only can be something bad that lasts that long. Right, I would assume so. Yeah, that, that, that's scary, actually. That's scary. It's called denial. It's called living the ostrich theory of life. The ostr- Oh, the head in the sand. The Is head in the sand. If you don't see the lion, it's not there. Not there. I don't see it. It's not there. And yeah. you know what? Yeah. It's a psychological ploy that some people use to help them cope with their daily lives. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's just another part of life you know we talk about uh, psychological ploys to cope with daily life dr Stu and i were talking before we started the show here about the theory of cognitive dissonance i'm saying it correctly yes okay so so this is now uh, dr Stu asks great questions and gives great answers and one of the questions we were sort of uh bouncing around was how good people become bad doctors and we were talking about a little bit about medical ethics and these types of things and uh you you were mentioning that uh, this theory of cognitive dissonance, which I I would have to, as a physician, and you are, to, and you blog about it, to stake these claims, to go out there on a limb, and you have, and to make these arguments, and you have, and to state these cases publicly, and you have, about, about uh, complex theories like cognitive dissonance and, and uh ethics and all of it, it's, it's got to be a touchy issue for one doctor to say it about not specifically another doctor but doctors in general it's like lawyers right sometimes you have a tough time finding a lawyer to go after another lawyer well it is it, you, it's very tough to be outspoken in a world where you have to rely on others to support you or to uh help you function in the world so it's you know what happens, and and I go, I know where you're going with this, Brian, because we did talk about it before the show, um, and 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 we may get to a, a whole theory of cognitive dissonance and how people cope with that as as this conversation goes on. But sure. let me back up for just a second because I did want to talk a little bit about today. I did want to talk today about. <laughs> sorry, right? Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm Yoda sometimes. I put the uh, <laughs> words before you know backwards, but, right? But um, I did want to talk a little bit today about why good people sometimes become really bad doctors. And I'm not even talking, I'm not trying to judge saying that I'm a good doctor and someone else is a bad doctor. I'm not talking about doctors who, who make mistakes, doctors who misdiagnose. I'm not talking about that. Because that has to happen. Uh, it's gotta, it happens to everybody. Right. And if you haven't had a bad outcome, 
they always say then you haven't been practicing long enough. What I'm talking about is doctors who know better but still do things that are not necessarily honest, ethical, or what we would call fully informed, fully informed patients of all their options, that they skew their counseling to get their client or their patient to do what they want them to do. They belittle people who do things differently than they do. They bully people. They bully their patients to get them, you know, they sort of ridicule them. They're, they're not bad people, but I, because of what I do, I become a focal point for people who have been uh, disenchanted or disgruntled with their physicians because of what they've been told about their pregnancy and not given certain choices. They read on the internet other choices. They come and see me and they tell me these stories and you just wonder, how does somebody who started off as this little kid who grew up, he rode his bicycle, he went to school, he flew his kite, he went fishing, he went to high school, graduated, went to college, you know, played around a little bit, maybe smoked a little bit of pot, didn't know what he was going to do for a while, but then he decided to go to medical school because he has a Jewish mom and they wanted you to go to medical school because he didn't, didn't want to sell shoes and he didn't want to be a lawyer. And I would assume so. he cares about people, too. I mean, obviously, you know, anybody who says to you at a young age or even early in adulthood, I want to be a doctor, you, you have to give two cents about other people to, to for starters. I right? think that's true. I think maybe years ago was also something where you felt you could make a lot of money and there was prestige to it. I think that that's diminished a little bit. So I think people, especially now, people going to medicine really do do so because they want to do good. They want to do good for other people. It's the same thing in the nursing profession and other ancillary healthcare professions. Radio. These people, radio. Right. You just want to do good for other <laughs> you people. You just want to do good for other people. Right. And yeah, and I, I could bet you, you could bet some of your colleagues in radio become not such good people after a while. Well, it does happen. And you wonder how how that happens because you go to medical school and you go in with wide eyes and you're you're you really want to I think it's law school is sort of the same way I mean people go to law school with open heart and open eyes and by the time they come out sometimes they're really skewed and tainted but the same thing sort of it goes through you go through residency you get beat up a little bit you pick your specialty and then you come out in the real world which you're completely unprepared for by medical school and residency training doesn't really prepare you for what the real world is like. It would be impossible, right, for, for the academia to teach you real-life practical yeah, stuff. Yeah, how to run a business, how to stay alive, all these other things that, that, that go on, how to avoid malpractice, how to... Manage an office. Manage an office. These things are really something that starts to wear on people. And so you wonder how this little boy with his bicycle becomes a doctor who laughs at a patient when she says she wants natural childbirth or tells a woman who's had a, uh, a desire for natural childbirth that she's two days overdue and her baby is big and if you don't induce this baby, she could end up with a baby that's injured at birth or a, or a brain-damaged baby. And where does this stuff come from? Or doctors, doctors who do a test on somebody that probably didn't even need, a, need to be done and then the tests find something that's a little bit wrong and then they have to bring them back for another test and another test or a woman that gets an ultrasound every time she comes in and then notices that she's being charged for all these ultrasounds. Why does that happen? How does that good little kid become that physician who does that? And let me ask you about that because, because you, you paint sort of a dramatic picture there and uh, obviously the home birthing that we talked about and we'll talk more about, that is sort of out of the mainstream. I mean, you acknowledge that it's not mainstream yet and you, you, you're a big believer, Dr. Stu, in giving these options uh, to a woman who's pregnant, making her aware of, of the spectrum of options. 
do you think some doctors, when they are maybe talking a, a, a patient or a client into a home birth, uh, rather into a hospital birth, in your view, are, are, are these physicians using bona fide scare tactics against the patient or on the patient? Or are they actually sort of just preaching something that they really do believe to be true? And maybe it's not true. Well, we could we could take home birth even out of the discussion. But, okay. but to answer your question, I have to believe that what they're telling patients is that something they truly believe. Because the alternative to me, Brian, is unthinkable. It's unthinkable to me that these good people could knowingly be skewing their counseling, be recommending only one option over other reasonable options, could be ridiculing patients or people who advocate for other things like myself. And again, this is this has nothing necessarily to do with home birth. This could be the doctor at the hospital who has a 40% C-section rate versus the doctor at the same hospital who has a 15% C-section well, rate. Well, it, it could be... Uh, uh options that are laid out for cancer treatment or anything like that correct right? okay. any sort of treatment any you know doctors who push supplements who happen to sell them in their office and boy you know how did you live without these supplements before that and and now doctors i mean i at one point was approached by somebody to sell a vitamin supplements in my office and i did it for about six months i went to the i took a course it was a it was a, one of those multi-level marketing things and i was yeah. approached by another uh, doctor to do it and I thought, you know what? My income is falling. This is a way to make more money. I did it. And then after about six months, I just felt like I needed a shower. Right, because you I found yourself fleasy. pushing, pushing yeah. the money. Yeah, right, and right. I didn't have any idea whether these vitamins were technically any better yeah, than the vitamins you buy at Vons. You're cheapening your own medical advice by just selling whatever. I felt like a snake it. oil salesman of selling something that doesn't necessarily have any literature to support it and i'm not saying you always need you know me i don't always believe that you need a study to support something right but the you know these uh, supplements are not regulated by any government agency well and by the way even if they are in terms of medication i was talking to randy not long ago about visiting a doctor's office where everything in the office was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company the the notepad had you know uh, a logo a plavix logo on it the pen said viagra you have a lot of viagra pen yeah i have a ton of them the the, the nurse walked in and she had uh, you know a celebrex tattooed on her forehead so you know there's a million things going on whether it's supplements and they're natural or regulated by uh, you know by uh, regulated by by the dea right i mean a doc and then you go into the office and the samples are falling out of the cabinet onto you right and and he or she the doctor is giving you these samples or giving you these vitamins right that that is still true to this day although the sample cabinet has gotten more bare as the uh regulations on the big pharma have come down and and made it harder you know it used to be that the pharmaceutical companies could take physicians to a laker game all right or oh. take us golfing those are the days yeah the, well, the halcyon day, the go-go 80s doctor right going? now now they can barely <laughs> give you a pen Right. And a, and a stale chicken sandwich. Okay. And those were the days, right? And those were the days. You know, it's interesting <laughs> how it's changed for doctors, but the legislators who make the rules that make doctors subject to only a pen and a stale chicken sandwich can be taken on a junket to study the economy of China while they're spending a week in Hong Kong at the government expense, gambling and golfing and doing all those other things. They can do it because they're ethical and above the fray, whereas doctors, of course, are easily corrupted by the 
stale chicken sandwich. <laughs> right, but right, but and if you're sitting there on the, I always like to draw the picture, the mental picture. You're sitting there on the crinkly tissue paper, you know, waiting for the doctor to come in. But you want to have every reasonable belief while you're sitting there on that paper, staring at a uh, a magazine cover that always has some wacky picture of a baby with a stethoscope or something. You know, the WebMD magazines or whether whatever is on on the uh, on the. The one that says, hey, Brian, time to lose weight. Right. That one it's, it has your name. Uh, actually, you, you read it and it's about you. Actually, really about you. And you go, wow. I didn't even know they were following me. But those types of things, you want a reasonable understanding that your doctor wouldn't push something on you just because somebody came by from the pharmaceutical company and gave them uh, a chicken sandwich. Well, that, that is true. And that is the code of ethics that we're supposed to follow. Uh, doctors have a fiduciary duty. Um, a fiduciary duty is like what the... CEO of a large corporation has to his shareholders. His responsibility is not to the public. His responsibility is to the shareholders. That's called a fiduciary duty. Doctors have a fiduciary duty to their clients to put their interests in front of his or her interests. Mm. And I mean, in front of, in front of the doctor's interests. Sure. So, or so, the interests of that rep who came in with the samples. Yeah, you can't. You know, and that's one of the basic tenets of the American Medical Association's Code of Ethics is to uh one is to respect patient decision making and autonomy and two is to uh you know respect their you know put their needs before your needs and even if and if their needs are in conflict with your needs then it used to be the ethical thing was to explain that to the patient and says i can't do that for you you might want to try going elsewhere as opposed to skewing your counseling to get them to do what you can, what you feel is right, which it may have a financial advantage to you. I mean, people always rail on the fee-for-service medicine uh, system. They think that, well, the more doctors do, the more they make. But the alternative is to have a system where the less doctors do, the more they make. Mm. And I'm not sure you want that either because then they start you know, not ordering tests that might be necessary because it might cost them money. So I'm not sure there's a perfect answer for that. But I always laugh at my at my lawyer friends who who rail on the fee for service system when you know you call them and ask them if you uh, got a, if they got a phone call from the other party and they send you a bill for twenty bucks for the for the thirty second phone call that right. you have. Right. Right. But it's an interesting because you asked the question a moment ago, how good people become bad doctors. And maybe we sort of answered that a moment ago when we talked about financial considerations. Well, there are three things that I think that have weighed in and changed the game um, for physicians. Yeah. Um, the modern doctor and patient relationship that we have is not the same as the one we grew up with. You know, we're, sp- we're still expected to treat uh, our patients with the same measure of duty and skill that we always have. But now there are so many outside forces intervening that um, it's made it much harder. The ones I'm talking about, I can summarize in three things. They're expediency, economics, and the third one is something called litigation mitigation. It's something that, I, that essentially you do things that may or may not be correct because it's maybe a safer way to avoid litigation. And litigation, of course, is the big anvil that hangs over the head of every single physician that's out there. Mm. Nobody, again, the good people who went into medical school are completely naive when it comes to really what the real world is like. And one of the things in the real world is like, is now that you have made a living and now that you have some asset or a million dollar insurance policy, you're a target. You are now a target. Right. You are absolutely a target. And so everything that you do is scrutinized. And whether it's whether it's something to do with your employees and your 
and the and and office management or to your clients, you are now under pressure to sort of not be as human as you normally would be. You have to watch what you say, you have to watch what you wear, you have to watch how you, you know, how you address patients, you have to uh, follow up with things that you normally would think that it would be the patient's responsibility to follow up with. For example, if a patient has an abnormal pap smear and you call her and speak with her and tell her she needs to repeat it in three to six months and say she doesn't come back for two years and then she has cervical cancer, you're, you can be held responsible for that. Even though you said in a conversation, come or, back to this office. Or even if you mailed her a letter. Now, doesn't mean you'll lose in court, but you can still be sued. And the process of being sued for a physician is devastating. Oh, it kills it's your reputation. It, it kills your reputation and you lose sleep, you lose weight, causes stress on yourself, your practice, your family. You feel like you did something wrong. The plaintiff's attorney is ma makes you feel as if you and Osama bin Laden ought to be you know, having a beer together because you're both as evil as can be. And this is the, 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 the nightmare that physicians live under. So they will often do things or they will change the way they do things in order to mitigate that possibility. And, and so if, if a hospital comes down and says, we really don't want you doing vaginal birth after cesarean, or we really don't want you doing breech delivery here, you're gonna say, well, I could fight them and I could do breech deliveries or, or vaginal birth after cesarean, but if I do and there's something that goes wrong, they're gonna come after me, the medical board's gonna come after me, the plaintiff's attorney's gonna come after me. Why would I do that when it's just as easy for me to do a C-section at 7.30 in the morning and be back in the office by 9 o'clock. Well, it's maybe not in the best interest of the patient. That's correct. That's uh, yeah. The second part of that is that's expediency. And, of course, economics is, is such that, you know, the doctor doesn't necessarily make more money by doing a C-section. Um, as a matter of fact, I, th I don't know if we talked about this last time, but one of my ideal changes that could occur to medicine from an insurance company standpoint would be if you want to lower the C-section rate, what you should do is you should pay doctors... $1,000 more for doing a vaginal delivery than they're paying for a birth now and $500 less for doing a cesarean delivery. So that a doctor who does a vaginal delivery is actually making $1,500 more than a doctor who does a cesarean section. Because quite frankly, a vaginal delivery requires more skill and more time than a C-section. But a C-section is surgery and so it has this idea that it's, it's more valuable. Now, it's scarier. For, it's scarier. So it's if you want to lower the C-section rate, but I'm getting off the track. Hospitals have an economic incentive to keep the C-section rate high. They want to fill that OR. And they make a lot more money from a birth that's born by cesarean than they do a birth that's born vaginally. Almost twice as much. And isn't that interesting because we talked about, we did talk about on, on, on the last show about how uh, doctors, you know, it is, it is, it is um, I guess, common thought that after I was telling you I'm a C-section, which is the, why I have this perfectly rounded head, this skull, which was not at all damaged at any point or dented. So my mom always said, Brian, you have the most beautiful round head ever because you were carefully lifted out of the womb rather than pushed out. And I said, oh, thank you. She said, you have great eyes too. So like that. 
but you, not, you do, Brian. You, thank you, you so much. And a great smile. Thank you. He was fishing you, for you, a compliment you know, That's there. the problem with radio is you can't see right. Brian. I'm staring right at him. Right. It's getting weird now. Smile. This is all getting very weird now. But what I was saying a moment ago about the cesarean, right, because it was thought after our cesarean, every kid's got to be a cesarean section, right? And, and, and we, we talked about how that is in your home birthing, how that is one of the theories that you're always sort of fighting against, or not even fighting against, but warning against and 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 you talked uh, earlier about sort of uh you know the the far eastern medicine you were s- sort of getting into that the idea of home births the idea of having your baby at home not in the hospital it does have sort of this to me and i'm not a doctor i'm not a pregnant woman you're not a doctor i'm not a doctor i'm not a pregnant woman but it has to me this sort of earthy feel to it that sort of rings a Far Eastern thought. Am I wrong to go there? The idea of having the baby at home in the bathtub or in the kiddie pool, doesn't that have some sort of... To me, it has rings of old-fashioned of this is what they did before there were all these giant commercialized hospitals. Yeah. I mean, wasn't this the standard, what, 100 years ago? Yeah, of course it was. And, and yeah, I don't think it doesn't... To me, it doesn't ring Far Eastern medicine. It just rings more naturopathic or homeopathic yeah. type remedies. And we tend to associate Asian medicine with home- homeopathy yeah, but, i'm doing that but there are all kinds of things there's there's you know from eastern europe and south america and, and all over the place that did uh, that did this so i don't get the same feel i think randy was hit it more on the head with the idea that it that it it's back to nature it's old-fashioned um and there's probably a lot of people listening that their grandparents they were home birthed and that was just the thing yeah well there's a there's a great line uh great opening uh premise in in ricky lake's book called uh your best birth the Forward is written by Jacques uh, Moritz, who's a uh, who's Abby Epstein, her Ricky Lake's cohorts, uh, obstetrician in New York. And one of the things he says in the forward is he was walking with his son in the village, and they walked past uh, an old brownstone house that has a plaque outside of it and says the birthplace of Teddy Roosevelt. Oh wow! And so the son asked the daddy, "Daddy, was Teddy Roosevelt really born here?" And Dr. Moritz says. Well, yeah, I guess he was, but you know, you're not going to see that anymore. You're not going to see a plaque that says "Birthplace of Barack Obama" unless it's on the, you know, the steps of the hospital in 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 Honolulu or maybe Indonesia or wherever else he was born. I yeah. have it seen might have been Kenya though. I can't remember. I have seen many Bill Clinton slept here plaques. <laughs> I, ha- I have seen that some might of be them. something different. Right? Is it different? <laughs> yeah. It is different, right? You know, it's totally different, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I don't think Bill's here to defend himself. Or, oh wait, wait, is he here? <laughs> well, let me just say to you that maybe I did sleep there. Maybe I didn't. Whatever. But he <laughs> is that maybe where places babies weren't born, but maybe they were conceived. Bill? That's right. Thank you. He was uh, right. So, so <laughs> right. That's right. Right. I mean, uh, but but it is. I I think that is maybe my consideration that it, it, homeopathy. You think sort of. I mean, I, I have seen obviously online drstewspodcast.com. Get up the website. See all sorts of blog entries and and YouTube's and all of this. And I've seen sort of you know some of this footage and it does you know i i I, for 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 a couple or for for a lady who's pregnant a client you call them not patients because they're not sick which is really very interesting that uh to be in the mindset that you would have a home birth i think you have to in 2013 for your mind to be there you've got to have a rather broad perspective is that fair well you have to be able to sort through all the the chaff to get to the wheat because you are bombarded with the things that you know even back to our topic you're bombarded by 
things that make you nervous, make you scared, make you want to, you know, just not have to think about this stuff and dump it on someone else. And oh, of course. Make it someone else's responsibility. And I, and I think physicians are sort of the same as patients in this regard. And these good people become tainted, for, you know, be, because the system just wears them down. Now, there are obviously people who are in it for the money and they, you know, they are the equivalent of shysters uh, in the medical profession. But that wouldn't change. But those, are the few, those are the few and far between. Right. The most, most doctors I know, they choose the path of having a 30 or 40% C-section rate and laughing at people that want to have a home birth or just automatically doing a C-section on a breach and not counseling them about the other options or over-testing people. I mean, it used to be we started post-dates testing for being overdue at two weeks overdue, which was 42 weeks. And then it was 41 weeks. And now it's 40 weeks in one day. And then maybe it's even 39 weeks and, and five days. The now. standard is shifting. Well, the standard isn't shifting. Okay. I mean, well, we can, another talk for another day is about standard of care because there's community standards, there's national standards, uh -huh. there's all kinds of different standards. But the standard isn't shifting. And the, and the data doesn't suggest that starting to test your baby at 40 weeks in one day makes any sense. So why do you think they do that? There's two reasons. Economics, Get you back in they there. make more money. And two, they cover their liability. So if they find something, I can't tell you how many people get a C-section because they have unnecessary testing, which, fl which finds a diagnosis of so-called borderline low fluid or borderline large baby. And so they're talked into having an induction for something that is perfectly normal and in the normal range, but because it's borderline, it, it just, they, and they were tested for something they didn't need to be tested on, it leads to all these other cascade of interventions. The key for my clients and for what I'd like to get across to other women in this country is to trust that your body can do birth and find a team, including a physician, maybe a doula, maybe a midwife, mm. maybe a, 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 your, your partner who you can trust, a team that, that get, makes you feel confident. If you feel the information you're getting you is giving you the creepy crawlies, it probably is creepy, <laughs> creepy information. And look elsewhere. Seek out second opinions. You know, a lot of doctors won't take a new patient after, say, 32 or 34 weeks. Part of it is they don't want to mess with the relationships they have with the other doctors in the community. But part, but, and part of it is that they, they, you, know, you can't get paid as much if you take a patient late, later in pregnancy. But there are physicians willing to take you, and it's never too late to, if you start to feel uncomfortable at 36, 37 weeks that your doctor's starting to lean away from this guy that said, yeah, you can have your birth plan and do whatever you want, to somebody who's saying, you know, your baby's looking a little big and your blood pressure's up a little bit and... It and would seem sort of to thing. me, and then it would, starting, to, starting to funnel you down that path where he wants you to go. It would seem to me that a pregnant woman or or a, a, a couple that's pregnant, right, considering the partner, you might be scared out of your mind by all. I mean, when, when you go through sort of these warnings and, you know, everybody's saying this, everybody's saying that, it would probably scare. Uh, it, it, it would have to be, I mean, the stress level would have to be. Th I, let me just say, for the record, I'd never want to be a pregnant woman. Can I say that? You look yeah. like one. <laughs> I, I would never want to be one. It would scare me out of my mind. Were you going in and every warning and every this? I mean, well, that's well, why you want to have a lot of people that can comfort you. And like Dr. Sue said, you want to have a team around. You want to just have one opinion. Are you pregnant? That might be. 
Uh, Randy, Randy's absorbing really well from what I'm saying here. And I have to tell you that I think it's really important that this is the message from today's talk. Sure. I mean, we're going to run out of time pretty soon. But the thing is, is that if you're a, if you're a, a patient, you know, your, your doctor, you've got to trust your physician. You really have to trust your physician. And there's no way to know. It's kind of like an auto mechanic or anything else. You really, it's word of mouth. You can't really ask a doctor what your C-section rate is because a doctor who has a really high one is probably not going to tell you the truth anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's really no way to, to, to do that other than reputation. Ask the nurses in labor and delivery. If you're going to have a hospital birth, the nurses in the labor and delivery love to be asked questions. They love to talk, especially anonymously, about the doctors in the hospital. So if you move to a new area in the country, one of the secrets I always tell people, they say, Stuart, do you know a, a doctor in uh, Houston because we're moving to Houston? as so many people are these days, by the way. Right. And I say, no, I don't know him in Houston, but here's what you do. You call at the local hospital, ask to speak to the nurses in labor and delivery, and you ask them, like, if you guys were pregnant, who would you go to? And they just want to give you their opinions. Oh, they love to give you their opinions. And they, <laughs> they give you the opinion of the doctor who's more natural, the doctor who, you know, some women don't want a natural doctor. Some women want a doctor who's going to tell them everything they have to do. Uh, I can relate a story once where I had a woman who came in every time with a list of at least five, if not more, questions about things that she's read that were making oh. her extremely nervous new concerns every time every time new concerns so i said it with love in my heart i said to her you know maybe you are reading too much and maybe you need to stop reading and doing all this research because it seems that it's really upsetting you and you come in here really anxious all the time and she got mad at me and she said you know what <laughs> this is my pregnancy and it's my body and she left me, and she oh. uh, I was not the physician for her. Wow. Would because, you have to advise some patients, uh, please, get off of WebMD. You have to stop researching your own stuff. Well, we talk about that at the very first visit <laughs> about the Internet because the Internet is a great source of information, but it's unfiltered. And as you know, if you search airplanes, the first things that are going to come up are Crashes. the crashes. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. So we, you know, when you put in pregnancy or you put in you know, itching in pregnancy or you put in um, heartburn in pregnancy, and they'll come up with, things that it could really be that are really bad. Right, you start right. dwelling and dwelling on things you shouldn't even be thinking about. That's why trusting that pregnancy works right most of the time and trusting your practitioner or your midwife uh, or your, again, your family members to do research. Be careful about getting advice from your mother-in-law and that sort of thing because you know a lot of people, especially people in the home birth world, it's, it's sometimes good to keep that quiet until it, you know they're going to be more accepting. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Because yeah, you're going to get looked upon as... Well, you know, it's, right. sort of, it's, it's sort of like being a black conservative. Uh-huh. Okay, you sort of get reared not, looks from the neighborhood. Right, right. you're not following that path there. <laughs> right. the, very quickly, and, and we'll touch on that, and, and then we'll, we'll come back and uh, join you next time. This, to me, is very interesting because you talk about family members giving opinions. The most advice-offering mammals I've ever met are moms. Every woman who's been pregnant has a list, uh, uh, you know, as thick as uh, the yellow pages of advice for the new mom. Oh, you're pregnant. Let me tell you everything about my pregnancy, right? I mean, uh, a lot of pregnant women are very enthusiastic to share their experiences with other pregnant women. It's a real connecting uh, thing that happens between women, and it's wonderful, and it's nurturing, and that's and, and women are very nurturing, and it's I, I'm honored to, to be able to work with them but I have to w- warn people of what I call another one of my, th- I guess, fishbineisms is is the Goldilocks theory, <laughs> of you know you're you're at the grocery store and you're in the checkout stand and the checkout lady says, "Oh, congratulations, you're pregnant," and she looks at you and 
and she says, you know, so are you due tomorrow? And you're only, you know, seven months pregnant. So oh. you're either, you know, you're always too big. You're always too small. You know, you're it, carrying like a boy. You're carrying, carrying like, like a, a girl. girl. It's never just right. Right. It's never just right. <laughs> never and, you, will you know, be. And so unsolicited advice is something to, to be uh, avoided as well. But you can't do that. So just take it with a grain of salt. Understand these people come from a good place. Like the doctors, they all start out coming from a good place. But what, what eventually happens is that fear or economics beats them down. And doctors sometimes change simply because they have to survive. You know, ultimately, totally. they have an overhead, they have a practice, and unlike, you know, I'm the exception, and I paid for my exception, and we'll be doing one of our shows about what it's like to be a victim of what's called sham peer review, and I don't even like to use the word victim, but to be under, you'll be put under the idea of sham, of sham right? and scrutinized for things because you're different, not because you're doing things that are wrong or dangerous or anything, but because you're doing things that are outside what makes them comfortable. So you, you accentuate things that they don't want to have accentuated, and therefore they have to belittle you. Mm. And doctors these days, you know, they're my colleagues. I mean, my own colleagues don't do what I do. I love them dearly. They respect me. I respect them. But sometimes I wonder, you know, and I know that they're not doing these things because they're bad people, but they don't offer people with the previous cesarean section the option of a VBAC. They just tell them, you know what, it's so easy, you'll have a C-section, you'll be in and out, mm. you know, without labor, there's not much pain, you'll right. be home in two days. They don't, you know, they don't really tell them all the things that can go wrong and, get, and do their fiduciary duty, which gets us back to the ethics part of it, which is to put the patient's interests before their own. That's a great conversation. DrStewsPodcast.com. Check out the website. There are a lot of blogs from some guy on the internet. He's got a lot of blogs. Oh, that's right. It's you. It's, it's you, Dr. Stu. DrStewsPodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. I'm Brian Whitman for Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Thanks for joining us.